0: Namo tasa bhagavato parahato samha Ammo tasa bhagavato Homage to the blessed, noble and perfectly enlightened one
1: 请不吝点赞 the unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I have come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing I vow to fathom the thus-come-one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, Dharma friends, welcome to our Sutra Lecture tonight. Uh, We are still here. The, uh, It is the day of the rapture, uh, May 21st, here in 2011, and uh, I must say there was an eerie moment about uh, 35 minutes ago when we were meditating, and we had a 3.2 earthquake happen right here in the Bay Area. Those of you who were in your cars didn't know that. We who were meditating uh, had a moment of, uh uh-oh, he's late. It was supposed to be 6, and now it's 7. But it happened at 7. Anyway, so that was a moment of uh, moderate excitement for the meditators. So. Let's turn to the front of our sutra text and recite the name of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas that you're find there.
0: Namo <laughs>
1: Please turn in your text to page 27 and 28. Page twenty-seven. Okay, let's uh, read the Chinese first. Bodhisattva, 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 Okay, enough of the Chinese. Let's look at the English. Disciples of the Buddha. This is how the Bodhisattva protects and upholds the precepts and skillfully increases his thoughts of kindness and compassion. Okay, this is the uh, second ground of the Ten Grounds chapter of a sutra called the Flower the Flower Garland Sutra, and the Ten Grounds uh, basically follow the uh, sequence of what's called the Paramitas, the Perfections, and the Paramitas are um, uh, a series of practices that the Buddha recommended for for Bodhisattvas. So, if you're an awakened being, um, the Paramitas are your tools. These are your they're in your toolkit. Things that you use as an awakened being to uh, to do your job as a bodhisattva, and uh, they it's a familiar list for people who study the Mahayana, the northern tradition of Buddhism. And uh, they begin it begins with giving, and the second one is precepts or morality, ethics, the way you behave as a, as a person, your character. And now we're on the second ground. And so the second ground has to do with the uh, precepts and character, morality. So um, that's why our text refers to the Bodhisattva protecting and upholding the precept. So as we're coming to the end, as you see, we're nearly at the end of the second ground. And this is all about the the tent, in this case, the, the precept part talks about the ten evil deeds, the ten whole, unwholesome behaviors. Another way to translate evil deeds. If evil deeds sounds too heavy, you can say the ten unwholesome behaviors. And because it's the Buddhist teaching, it's always got a, a roundness to it. So He also talks about the ten wholesome behaviors, the ten good deeds, the ten, ten ways to ascend, which have to do with character as well. That's what we've been studying from every angle, and praising the ten good deeds and warning about the ten unwholesome behaviors and and, uh, then giving us two rewards, two retributions for each of the ten unwholesome deeds. If you recall how uh, concrete those were, for example, uh, the first one, the, the unwholesome deed of taking life, of forcing the spirit, the soul, the awakened nature out of a body before it, its life comes to an end naturally. That unwholesome deed, says the Buddha, um, brings about two kinds of retribution if you come back as a human. One is that you yourself will have a short lifespan. Two, you'll have a lot of illness. And... When I first read that, I thought, wow, so judgmental. Here are the Buddhists. It's all suffering all the time. It's all bad news. I thought, actually, let me look at that again. And I thought about that. And it it made sense to me that the Buddha was just um, articulating. He was just painting in the color of the outline of cause and effect. It wasn't that he had anything instrumental to do with people having a short lifespan or much illness. He was simply describing what happens in reality when you, I, connected to all of life through this interconnected web. When I willfully force the life out of some other being, it rebounds on me because I'm not apart from the web life as I do those deeds. So that made sense. And when you flip it over and look at the other side, it also makes sense, which is to say, if instead of harming beings, I increase their lifespan, if I foster the conditions that, that help them live and get through their days, what's the result of that? Likewise, two things. One, my lifespan extends, and two, I have a healthy body. I don't get sick. So, again, cause and effect, and makes sense. It's not the Buddha's wishing for being the engine for those changes. He's only saying, here's what I saw. When I woke up and became awakened, became the Buddha, it was as if the, the hood of the universe's car opened up and I was able to look down the engine and say, oh, look, the piston's going back and forth and the crankshaft's going around and around and it translates into the wheels and they turn and the car moves. This is what I saw, said the Buddha, more or less borrowing an automotive analogy. What he said was, cause and effect is really the engine that drives us through the world. And you can use it skillfully or you can use it less skillfully and be used by it And sometimes we forget the cause and we just see the effect and think, oh, how did this happen? How could life be so unfair to me? When in fact, uh, the cause and effect is always there. Uh, As they say, 死好也不爽, not off by a single hair's breadth. So um, that's what we've been finding out about. And those two results of each deed uh, were one of the things that actually redefined my understanding of these texts as being very much like a, a doc file, like an a, uh, explanation of how to live skillfully or less skillfully. So we've come to the end of that second round. And a summary, have got a summary section here, Disciples of the Buddha. This is how the Bodhisattva, the awakened being, protects and upholds the precepts, um, skillfully, wisely, uh, explaining them as he does as he does so, as she does so. And, connection here, as he does so, he skillfully, she skillfully increases her thoughts of kindness and compassion. I like that. Um, The idea that uh, living virtuously is a kind deed. Kind not only to to those around the Bodhisattva, but also kind to the Bodhisattva, Herself. Um, one way, to, um, one way to, to look at the precepts is to say, um, let's look at the, the first five that um, are the basic Buddhist moral guidelines. Killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lies, and intoxicants. Five um, actions to restrain, said the Buddha, if you want to get to the second step, which is a concentrated mind. So, killing harms my connection to life. Stealing harms the materials that support somebody's life. The, The stuff that we need to get through the day, the food, clothes, medicine, shelter, if, if you steal, if, if I steal, then I've deprived somebody of the supports of their life. So I'm harming them and my connection to material, my relationship with the world, the physical world around me, is harmed. Three, the third one, is sexual misconduct, which is talking about relationships. If I uh, go wrong with sexual misconduct, the classical way is adultery that is to say, outside of my own vows, I interfere with another couple's vows, then um, I've harmed their relationships. The result is, in my relationships, there are obstacles. There's a a fundamental tear in the integrity, in the the trust, and that's a harm to self and others. At the time, it seems like uh, the thing to do and immediately, um, there's a, a, a tear in the, the fabric. The fabric has been torn of the, the knitting together of relationships, that balance of respect and self-respect. So the fourth one is honesty. And when we lie, we cheat others, we misrepresent, we hide, we cover um, and at the same time, we distort our relationship to our own mind so that when it's time to see the truth, there's a, a wave, there's a dis- distortion in the mirror of the mind. So again, harming self and others. Then dis- uh, the, the last one is intoxicants. And the idea is when we distort our minds with... What I call substances these days, either it be alcohol or drugs, whatever, we um, harm ourselves fundamentally. The the fifth one, it's not as easy to make the case that you're harming others when you use intoxicants, but uh, certainly the the harm to self is clear. Think about cause and effect. Um, in any case. No matter whether we 're intoxicated or stone sober we 're responsible for the decisions we make. Cause and effect is always working if we do if we make a decision when we 're clear, then we have a better chance of choosing wisely between the choices when we make the decision and our mind is uh, polluted by alcohol or dope, whatever it might be, um, then we still have to make choices and we're responsible for the choice that we make, sober or drunk. So which choice do you want to be responsible for? That's, that's, the, um, that's the way the Buddha described intoxicants. At no time is he shaking his finger and saying, Bad and wrong, you're, you're drunk, you're stoned. Bad, 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 I don't like you. Not that, it's that, oh gosh, man, take care because why, that decision you just made is gonna bite you, oh, ow. I wish you'd been clearer when you made that decision. You probably would have seen that that was the wrong choice. Ouch, well, I'll pick up the pieces later. That's what the Buddha would say. So it's not a judgmental. It's not a, a, a uh, finger-shaking father saying that he doesn't like us now. Uh, you're not going to heaven because I didn't so like, I didn't choose you. You didn't rapture today. It's not that. It's the idea of we're responsible in any case, so choose wisely. Your chances of making a decision that you like are better when your mind is clear. So... There's that sense. Those first four, killing, stealing, lust, and lying, clearly harm self and others. The last one is self-harm. The first four are called precepts of the nature and they keep popping up in the Old Testament, in the Quran, in the Hindu scriptures, in uh, the, uh, the Old Testament, which is the basis of both Jewish, Catholic, and Protestant theology. Those tablets coming down from Mount Sinai with Moses had the first four precepts on them, among others. So how interesting that religious founders worldwide pick out those four as being fundamental harms to self. When you say, indeed, those hurt others as well, you can see the connection here in the sutra between the Bodhisattva protects and opposes the precepts, and as he does so, his thoughts of kindness and compassion arise. They increase So, suppose you were there saying, here's my opportunity to kill, to steal, to be promiscuous just because I want to, or to lie. But I see that as I do that, I'm going to be hurting and responsible for bringing pain to the person who I killed, stole from, Cheated on or lied to, as well as myself. Seeing the ripples that go out into the fabric of the interconnection at each step is an extra caution. It's a way to go maybe if I just take a deep breath and sit still and refrain, just the absence of those ripples going out can be good and indeed this text, this second ground talked about refraining from killing, stealing, lusting, lying and the other six evil deeds as a good simply by not doing the evils we're contributing to the, to the good in the world so interesting perspective of taking responsibility for the sum total of the goodness in the world with every act um, it's not Imagination, it's not goody goody, it's not altruism, warm and fuzzy. From the Buddhist point of view, it's a fact. We're connected, so act as if every word counted, because indeed it does. All right. Um, Somebody was, there's a Facebook initiative to get a class action suit against poor Reverend Harold Camping, poor old fellow. 89 years old, the man who worldwide told us that the world was going to end today. Class action suit because he was acting as a terrorist for the people who take him seriously. So, now, mind you, the day is not up. But it was supposed to start his prediction. Poor old guy. He's a local fellow, 89-year-old minister who truly, truly, truly believes. In, in what he is saying. I'm sure he's, he would not say so carelessly, casually. He felt from his point of view that he was giving us enough warning. But it was supposed to happen in New Zealand, because that always, you know, when they do the New Year's thing, New Zealand, Australia get it first, and then it rolls around. Didn't happen there. Didn't happen in Australia. And if you're watching on Twitter, every country was checking out, you know. Didn't happen, didn't happen, didn't happen around the world. And it got to us in California at 6 p.m. And, happen. poor guy. So there were, uh, along with a class action suit, which is snarky and mean-spirited, there was also some very uh, kind-hearted ministers, preachers, reverends in Oakland, who said, you know, we need to do some pretty serious healing of the folks who absolutely believed and who didn't get their didn't get their rapture? What about the ones who quit their jobs, sold their houses, got ready, you know, put on their best? What do you wear to the rapture? Especially when you're lifted bodily up to heaven and you have to leave your clothes behind? How do you prepare for that? So it looks like it didn't happen. And the poor guy, this is the second time he's been wrong. Is it too soon to call it, like an election? Can we call it it for Al Gore this time? Didn't happen? Did it happen? Did it not happen? does not look like it happened, although we did have a 3.2 earthquake at 17. So, um, what kind of harm do you do to people when you threaten them with the end of the world and then nothing happens? There are people who say, well, I never took them seriously to begin with. What if? Right? What if? This is a Absolutely serious man who did his best to warn us that something's going to happen and didn't. And if I warn you that you're going to get indigestion if you eat, you know, a quart of ice cream, that's one thing. But if I warn you that the world is going to come to an end and you are going to hell and damnation unless you're chosen, that's something else again. Now, in his defense, in his defense, he would correct me and say that the rapture was what happened today, and that, um, how many, three million people, were saved today. The end of the world doesn't happen for six months. October is when the lightning and the earthquakes and the plagues come. So, so it's not we're not in the clear yet. If you weren't saved today, and all of you here, I'm I'm assuming are not among the rapturees. You still get to keep your pets at home and your bank accounts. Uh, If you made it today without being lifted bodily to heaven, then October is the real drumbeat. That's when the clock is ticking for six months when God ends things. So there's a prediction within a prediction. It wasn't the case that we were all supposed to die in a thunderbolt today. It was that... The chosen were lifted up. So, if on your way home tonight you see piles of clothes and cell phones by the side of the road, you'll know that somebody made it. So you should be happy for them. Hallelujah. It's hard on doomsday prophets. You know? The averages aren't good. If you... Or one who holds a sign and says repent sinners the end is near you're sorry to say putting yourself on the bullseye to become a laughing stock it's really hard to predict, protect you if you give the date say it's going to happen because it mostly doesn't and you know if you're a preacher you've got to be more savvy than to commit to a date because it's a roll of the dice it is either up or down, and I'm afraid for Reverend Harold Camping it was a down today. This one, however, was picked up worldwide. There was people watching all over the world. Is he why? He's a multi millionaire uh, multimillionaire and he sent uh, he sent SUVs all over the country. Uh, Times Square was full of people with the big signs. He bought the side of the hangar at the Oakland Airport went to get on a plane in the last month, you've seen this giant, giant sign saying, Bible guarantees it. March, May 21st. Cry mightily unto the Lord because the end is coming. He was on buses, East Bay Transit buses, AC Transit, and uh, billboards everywhere, including the electronic one on Highway 101 that was counting down the days and the one that changes, you know, nine days, eight days, seven days so being in the preaching business I totally sympathize with the the wish to to help you know I gotta think he wanted to help he wasn't out for fame he's 89 years old he's got his multi-million dollars he was trying to save us from from the way he did the numbers but his mathematical formula was really complex did anybody look into it right how you do it Correct. That's what he did. But you see, people always do that when it's the book of Revelation. And there's a... The way he did it, Kai, Kai just described, it's mathematical. Problem is, Reverend Camping had his own special formula. He dated, You count backwards, 7,900 years from Noah. And he said, but then you have to add a year. And he added a year for a time change. And when it gets into those tweaks, and then you commit to it, boy, your sacred math had better be right on. So he, it's, it's quite interesting, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of PhDs who write their theses about this event, so, and they will have to research the mathematics, so he counted backwards 7,900 years and added a year. So. <clears throat> All right, so we still got, it's 8 o'clock, we have four hours to go. So if, if this lecture is interrupted halfway through by, you know, thunderbolts and then. I'm, I'm, yeah, there is a repentance, but I'm not going to take credit for that either. Because when I do that, then I stand right beside Reverend Arrow Camping and say, we stopped it. I ain't going to say we started it when it's going to happen, or we stopped it. I am completely aware of the workings of cause and effect. This world did not come about because of one cause. It will not end because of one cause. We are called zhong, sheng, multitude born. We come about because of a multitude of causes. And this world is one of many, many, many. So that's as close as a Buddhist will inch to getting a prediction. When does the world come to an end? When your false thoughts stop. For you, you can be reborn, you can be unborn right at that point. But stopping my false thoughts is very much like going to Strawberry Creek and saying, I command you, stop. Strawberry Creek goes, you know, very happily. So it ain't going to happen. So, however it is not impossible to stop your thoughts. It's just that I am giving rise, giving birth to thoughts every instant. You know. When your karma, the Buddha was able to, because of his pure karma and his clarity on emotions, he was able to, to see to the bottom of his mind with all that water calm and still. And at that point, he stepped out of that flow of birth and death. But um, all somebody has to do to get my thoughts moving is to take this guitar and smash it on the stage, and you'll see <laughs> the creation of many thoughts on the spot. <laughs> you, know. you know, stop, stop! Don't do that. Oh. I am not level and equal when it comes to, to for example, hurting animals. Uh, if you want to push my button, kick a dog, I will respond. You know, whip a horse, and I will or toss a cat on the freeway and I will immediately respond with much fire. I don't, I'm not level and equal when it comes to cruelty to small things. Um, and I can get riled up by ignorant politicians voting to give money to rich people at the expense of people who don't have enough to take care of their parents. Medical bills. That will push my button too, but we won't go into that tonight. Alright, so here's the idea that as the Bodhisattva sees his long conversation about good and evil um, help people appreciate how precepts are guidelines, what happens? His thoughts of kindness, and compassion increase. Notice, This is a first, uh, this is a second stage, second ground bodhisattva. His compassion, her compassion, is not full yet. Still on the road. When we get up to the tenth stage, the bodhisattva there has got full, complete. There's no more increasing of thoughts of kindness and compassion. When I read this, um, what stuck in my mind was how. These thoughts are growing. It says it says, Hu Ji shan he is getting better at making his kindness and compassion grow. Shan Nang, skillfully able to increase those thoughts. And what occurred to me was, um, as we take this into our minds right now, um, How does it make sense? Suppose you are living with a teenager. Or you could even say a two-year-old. You're the mom, right? Terrible twos. That two-year-old, very hard to be kind and compassionate to a two-year-old. And you can have thoughts, I'm sure as a mom, which shock you. As you think, I'm going to pound this kid That cry, he's been crying for an hour, you know, (laughs) he deserves it. You go, I can't do I'm the mom. Or the dad, you know, sees his kid. He tells the kid what to do because it's the wise, clever, good and right thing to do, and the kid does the exact opposite. With this attitude of, "Hmm, who are you? you know, and the dad is there. Mm -hmm. And you have that thought rise and go, that's not right oops, what do I do when I'm the adult and I'm about to pulverize this little creature who is here just to push my button? What do you do when those thoughts rise? What do you do? How do you not apply force to make the situation right when you know what's right and it's going wrong? What do you do? You find a way, first of all, you make a promise that you're not going to hurt physically, a a younger creature. And then you, in that little space that you created by promising that you won't, you got that little space, you skillfully transform that energy. You reclaim it. You own that energy and recycle it. Why? Because you have stillness and concentration. You have samadhi. Or you don't. Why do we practice the Dharma so that we will have samadhi at the moment of decision? Where does the samadhi come from? It comes from Ru Hu Chi the Bodhisattva upholds and protects that character guideline. Those character guidelines. Because he or she does that, when the situation arises, and what I get from this text is, there will be lots of opportunities to increase your thoughts of kindness and compassion when those thoughts don't start out that way. But every thought is a chance to be right with you. Every thought is a chance to turn it towards kindness and compassion. Question. Samadhi. Samadhi. Samadhi, Samadhi is a Sanskrit word. Samadhi, and it's um, what it means is stillness and concentration. Um, it's there are all kinds of samadhis that are. Um, states of stillness and concentration some are right on some are less right on um, the, the less right on samadhis are when it goes into trance it's important to s- separate trance from the Buddhist description of samadhi so who's in samadhi here's a picture of somebody in samadhi right I'll give you my, in, my impression of somebody in samadhi right Like that, how am I doing? Y'all recognize? Good. Yeah, a good, a good imitation of somebody in samadhi. Okay. Now, notice that my eyes are open and I was still breathing. A cat stalking a mouse is an example of a not so good samadhi. We call that a xie ding, a deviant samadhi, because the the cat is waiting for the mouse, right? And as soon as the mouse appears, twing, that's where it goes wrong. Because the purpose of the samadhi was eat. Now, for the cat, that's perfectly natural. For the mouse, I guess it's natural. It's a relationship. But proper, correct, right on samadhi is a stillness of body and mind. Um, the simplest kind of samadhi is one called uh, in Chinese, it's called qing an, which means pure purity and calmness. It's a state where in the midst of activity, you are focused. Now, some people, some athletes, swimmers, long-distance runners, the quarterback Y.A. Tittle from the San Francisco 49ers back in the day. Um, Who else? Uh, Wayne Gretzky, the hockey player. All described the state where in the midst of intense physical activity they entered the zone. Right? You've heard of the zone. And the zone, Y.A. Tittle, who was a fantastic quarterback back in the 50s and 60s, the early San Francisco Giants, talked about the state where he would get the snap, he would fade back, and he said as he launched that pass out, he could see that football spiraling through space, and he knew as he released it that it was going to wind up in the hands of the N, who was diving for the goal line, caught the ball, Scored six points. From the time the ball left his hand to the time it hit the end's hand, the quarterback saw it slowly, kind of like through jello, moving through space, and he knew it couldn't miss the zone. okay. So, a temporary for Y. A. Tittle, was that Samadhi? It's interesting. I can't say yes, I can't say no, but definitely it's an altered state where time and space seem to shift. Okay? The state of samadhi, which is the second of the Buddha's three primary directives, character, concentration, and insight. That second state comes from the first step, which is character, precepts. What is it? The Buddha says, if we refrain from killing, stealing, going wrong with relationships, lying and drugging ourselves, when we sit still, and typically samadhi is related to seated meditation, but not always, finally. When we do the first step, which is calming our bodies and minds, living harmlessly, increasing our thoughts of kindness and compassion, when we do that, then we sit still, what happens is, if you think of a, there's a good analogy of taking like a flower vase, a clear glass or crystal flower vase, going out and dipping up some water from the, from the sewer, from the gutter, setting it down, washing the leaves and the twigs and the dirt, settle to the bottom. So the bottom has got this little layer of sediment, but the water's all clear. When we let the mind do that sitting still, down to the bottom, what we discover is we can see our mind at work. We can watch our impulses, watch our habits, watch our desires, watch the ego, watch our low self-esteem, watch our pride, our doubts, all these things, one by one, kind of cross the mind like a bird through the air. Most of the time when a bird goes by it's whoosh, right you just kind of see the shadow. But if we had that slow-motion vision of Y a tittle, we'd see that bird you know making all these subtle, sophisticated motions of its wings carving through the air. When our minds are calm, we see our thoughts come through just like that. So what? we can choose not to react or to react. Why? Because we have samadhi. We have that stillness and concentration in our minds that comes from not killing, stealing, lust, and lying. Now, suppose we do kill, steal, lust, lie, drug ourselves. Sitting there, thought rises up, we totally miss it. And just go do, like we've always done, scolding, fighting, anger, delusion, all that stuff, because why? We didn't catch our our thoughts. Our mind was turbid. Our mind was totally emotional because of some fight we had with someone we care about. We're upset because we killed someone and we can't forgive ourselves. We're stolen and we can't... Think of what to do with this extra stuff that we got that didn't make us happy even after we got it. We lied and now we have to cover the lie. And so our minds are put in a As a result, thoughts rise, can't see. That's the non-samadhi state. So the Buddha said, precepts, concentration, wisdom, character, concentration, insight. Shila, samadhi, prajna. That's, that's what samadhi is. So, Sometimes it's a good word because it's a Sanskrit word, but it's easy to say in English, Samadhi. That's not as easy to say as Ding Li in Chinese. So Samadhi, we're kind of introducing that bit by bit into English vocabulary. But it's okay to say concentration. Where it's different from a trance, and early translators of Samadhi, sometimes translated Samadhi as trance state, is trance often means kind of dull, kind of spaced, and not the zone either. Because tittle was not in a trance. Right? And those runners who say that they hit the wall and then go through, they, you long distance running, you kind of put your mind into another space. It's not a trance because a trance is unable to adapt, unable to shift, unable to respond. And the Buddha's samadhi is, the the, the samadhis, plural, that the Buddha described are states of amazing responsiveness, response sensitivity that you've never had before. And it's the opposite of putting your body and mind to sleep. You're not a bump on a log. You're awake and aware in a whole new dimension. So that's how I think it's different from trance. It's a fascinating state. Let me say one more. The, uh, because Master Shren Ha, our, our founder, our teacher here, was a uh, Chan master, among other things. He uh, talked a lot about what meditation was like. He was, he was a Zen master, Chan master. And he would describe the four samadhis, what are called Dhyana samadhis, the four kinds of Chan D-H-A-Y-A-N-A D-H-Y-A-N-A Dhyana Samadhi Chan Samadhi which are states that you can enter as you meditate and he described them as uh, progressive states of physical, mental and spiritual change. For example, the most dramatic ones are the physical changes. In their, their number, one, their two, one, two, three, four dhyana samadhis, four states of meditation. And he said, anybody can get there. Anybody can, can get into a state of dhyana, but you have to work. You have to meditate more than you surf the web. You have to meditate more than you, more hours sitting than you spend online. And just a few years ago, that would have been a silly statement, right? Now it's not so silly. What are they? The first dhyana, one, two, three, four. The first dhyana is a state where your heartbeat stops. The second dhyana is a state where your breathing stops. The third dhyana is a state where your coarse thinking stops. Subtle thinking is still there, and the fourth dhyana is a state where you go beyond thought entirely. So in Chinese, it's called Li Sheng Xi Le Di, Xi The second one, I'll translate that. In, the second one is called Ding Sheng Xi Le 来的。The third one is called Li Xi Miao Le Miao Le Dee,不是 Li Xi Le,是 Miao Le Li, Li The fourth one is called Shernian, Chin Jing Dee, Nian Toh Tu Miao. So the first one is called the state of, of happiness that goes beyond any kind of happiness that ordinary people, sense-bound beings can experience. So that first dhyana is a state of incredible happiness. They say it goes beyond sexual pleasure, the pleasures of food, the comfort of sleep, all of those physical states of, of happiness. This goes beyond. It transcends. If you can imagine. So it's called Li Shiva the state of happiness that goes beyond what ordinary ordinary means people in their senses can experience. Nice state, they say. The next one is called Ding Shang Shiva the state of happiness where samadhi ding, concentration is born, where that concentration arises. And why? Your heartbeat and your lungs have stopped functioning in the old way it's not that you die because if your heart beats stops beating and your lungs stop working definitely you're dead to medical science right? Not. Your breathing opens up in a horizontal you breathe through your skin pores in other ways your heart the circulation of your heart circles the way the qi in the acupuncture meridian type qi circles different okay so the state of happiness where samadhi is born ding shi no the third one is called Li Shi Miao Lu di. It's a state of s- sublime joy, that goes beyond happiness. State of sublime joy that goes beyond happiness. They say that the Buddha was in the third dhyana the night that he attained awakening. So his particular samadhi that he, the Buddha himself, the Prince Siddhartha was in as he became the Buddha, was the third yana. Li Xi, the marvelous, sublime joy beyond happiness. So what's that like? Whoa, I'm totally in awe of that. I'd like to know myself. Someday maybe I will. And then the last one is called Shū Nian, Qing Bing the state of purity that leaves behind all cognitive activity, a state of purity that leaves behind the mind entirely. Subtle thoughts are quiet. So, if you think about it, that fourth dhyana totally integrates the mind into the other five senses. We, by and large, are totally head-heavy beings. Well, I think so. I don't disagree. I don't think so either. What do you mean? You can't say that. We are just all bound up in words and thoughts. Constantly. We, I am, you know, Descartes. I, I think, therefore, I am. I know. Mm-hmm. That the Buddha would say, right, and, that's, and therefore you suffer. Right? I think, therefore, I, the ego, arises because of thoughts, of oneself. And the Buddha would say, ergo, kuwa dissatisfaction dukkha comes precisely from Descartes I think before yeah. so to be able bit by bit to reduce what's called the hegemony of the mind this totalitarian dictator of our lives which is our, our duality yes no right wrong me and mine you die i live i win you lose that dictator. who's was in there just causing all the trouble, pulling us out of our home, which is connected to all of you. When that gradually gives up, in the fourth dhyana, it unites with eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind as simply one more sense. And at that point, we are one with the dharma. There's no difference between me and principle. That's Confucius got to that place where he said uh, at age 70 he was able to act completely and never leave behind virtue. So every act without a thought was there to benefit others. Never left a Tao with any act or word. What a wonderful state. Confucius got to at age 70. It took him all those years to get there. So uh, was Confucius in the fourth Dhyana? I won't go that far. That's not my point. But it's a, it's a, it describes a similar thing. So, Li Sheng Shi le di, state of happiness beyond what ordinary beings experience. Ping Sheng Shi le di, the state of, of uh, happiness where Samadhi arises, concentration, stillness, and concentration. Three Li Shi Li Shi le di, state of joy beyond uh, happiness and The state of marvelous, sublime joy beyond happiness and the state of purity when all thoughts cognitive processes stop. That's samadhi. Okay, aren't you glad that I gave you a 20-minute answer to your one-sentence question? What's samadhi? See you next week. (laughs) This was great. So, in other words, it's a big topic. It's really marvelous. And it's the point, you know, of why did the Buddha say No killing, no stealing, no sexual misconduct, no lies, no intoxicants. Not because the Buddha was out to destroy all our fun. It's Not because the Buddha wanted Buddhists to suffer all the time. Not. It's because, he said, if you think going to Reno over Christmas vacation is a good time, wait till you get to Samadhi. You'll be glad you learned to meditate. Because it's worth it. It's way better than pizza in front of the TV. Way better. It's just the cat's meow. So that's Samadhi. Now, uh, one more thing to say. What I describe are the four dhyanas. There are other Samadhis that are what you call famous Samadhis. The four dhyanas are pretty much generic. Master Srin said, Anybody can enter samadhi, but you have to work at it. And you have to make body, mouth, and mind very calm, ping level and equal. Mostly we all have these hooks that will, when we hook something, whoop, we're no longer ping It's suddenly the big waves. This is great. That's horrible. I love this. I hate that. And when you're ready for samadhi, you don't do this anymore, you do this more. Things are pretty much the same. If you don't get a chai latte with an extra shot in the morning, it's okay. You can make do with some gaoshan tea, oolong you know, tea. It's the same. More cold, hot water is enough. So, that's the generic samadhi. There are famous samadhis, such as the sharangama samadhi. That the Sharangama Sutra, the Sharangama mantra are about. The Avatamsaka samadhi. There's another incredible samadhi. There's one samadhi called the Hayin Sanmei. The samadhi of the ocean like imprint. Uh, a yin is like a seal, like a chop, right? Like that. That's a hyin The ocean wide imprint. They say in that samadhi you can see How all things in the world, all dharmas whatsoever, have this uh, basic identity that is like a reflection. It's as if you're looking through still water at all these things perfectly balanced in the water. And it's a reflection, but it's all there. And yet it's just a reflection. So there's this interaction between image and truth two levels of reality in the ocean imprint samadhi yin samadhi so there's wonderful samadhis and uh, bodhisattvas are the ones who who get into them the um, flower garland sutra our very sutra was spoken on nine different times in seven different places two of the places were twice and every time the Buddha spoke the sutra in those nine places he first entered a samadhi And they're different. Each one is different. And then from that samadhi came the various teachings. Our bodhisattva, Vajra Treasure bodhisattva, entered samadhi before he spoke the Ten Grounds. And it's kind of like you, there's a bit of, um, not a bit, there's information that comes to you when you put your mind and body into that samadhi space. So, very, you know, this is fundamental Dharma. Thank you for asking the question. Okay. As, my point that I wanted to make was when I gave you that story about the dad and the mom who get their buttons pushed and they still come up with the kindness and compassion. The point I wanted to make is I want the Bodhisattva's state here to come alive for us because why kindness and compassion for him is growing does that mean those thoughts arrive fully formed, kind and compassionate? Mostly I think not. Mostly I think they're recycled from <clears throat> other feelings. But then you go, no, I can't do that. I need to take a deep breath and remember not to kill, steal, lust, and lie. Okay. I'll expand my mind. I can absorb the hit to my pride in the interest of serving kindness and not harm. I think that's where those thoughts come from. I think they're salvaged out of greed, anger, delusion. Mostly. The point is what? Kindness and compassion is practiced in action. In the flow Is where these thoughts come from. Not fully formed, pop, oh, I'm a bodhisattva, I have kindness. Not. It's, I'm going to kill that dirty, no, I remember what happened last time. Okay, okay, I'll be patient instead. Get there. What did Master Srenha give us as the clue? He said, this is the king of all dharmas, he said. I will not allow myself to have thoughts of fighting, greed, thoughts of seeking, thoughts of selfishness, thoughts of personal advantage, thoughts of dishonesty. Those are the six guidelines. He said those are the ones. And what about those six guidelines? Those are the levers by which we leverage fighting, greed, seeking, selfishness, benefit, and dishonesty. We go... Okay, that's my cue. There's my thought. Ah, that's a loser. That's a ringer. I'm going to wait. Good, there's one. These thoughts, what does it say? Zeng Zhang. It says, Shan Zhang, Zhang. the major scene. Skillfully, he's getting better at increasing thoughts of kindness and compassion. What does that mean? There's a bunch of thoughts in the Bodhisattva's mind that are not kind and compassionate. But he or she is getting good at turning. That's the Dharma that I recognize. Because why? It's based on us. It's based on the Buddha's experience of being a living being. Being a sentient being. Which is what? Full of non-compassionate thoughts that you are getting better at turning. In other words, give yourself a break when those nasty thoughts come rising up. But catch them and turn them. The bodhisattva is good at turning, composting, recycling those stinker thoughts that are rising up all the time. Bodhisattvas are not born. They are made by people like us who don't let ourselves follow Fighting, greed, seeking, selfishness, pursuit of advantage and desires, killing, stealing, lusting, lying, drugging things. If we catch them and turn them, we're on the way. Okay. So, the the non-principle is the idea that somehow bodhisattvas are just like that. They're lofty and wonderful. That's nice. Meanwhile, down in the trenches, we are struggling because we're just kind of fated that we just have to go kill and steal and lust. And it's just the way to... No, not a bit. That's quitting on your resolve to wake up and benefit others. Mostly, I think, our thoughts can be improved. In my case, boy, oh boy. Those thoughts. I've, I've been... Um, Finally, after 30-some years, getting following instructions. Uh, Master Xuinhua gave uh, Marty, uh, the former Hong Chao and myself, instructions. As soon as we finished our pilgrimage and arrived at City of 10,000 Buddhas, the instructions were, finish your journals now. We had been keeping a journal every day. We wrote in between our bowing. And when we got to City of 10,000 Buddhas, we had turned in all but the last, actually the last 100 miles was still in the journal from the Golden Gate Bridge to Ukiah. It was about three months worth. And it took um, four journals to, to get from Seal Rock, which is uh, there at the northern tip of San Francisco, right there by the Presidio, across the bridge to Marin through Sausalito, Over Shoreline to, you go up the houseboats under the freeway, Shoreline Highway over to Stinson Beach, and then up Highway 1 to Point Point Arena, and then over on the Hoonville Road to Ukiah and Talmadge. So that's three months' worth, four volumes of journals. Triple said, put those... Finish them. Get them out. Now. Yes, sure, Fu. We will definitely do that. Well, 30 years later, I'm still up there. Still those volumes. They've been on my back all these years, thinking, "Oh, well, you know, I really should finish those. They're all there, but we just didn't transcribe them and put them into print. So we printed nine volumes of journals, but the tenth one is still in manuscript. So, finally... This month, I've been doing the transcribing. And uh, what I discovered is very, very humbling. Oh, my Lord. The stuff that was coming up as I was bound. Looking for, here I am after, what, two years on the road. Thinking, finally back in the Bay Area, all my friends and family can come out and see how I look as a monk. <laughs> right? Boy, I'm not talking, you know. I'm not talking. (coughs) Don't talk to me because I won't answer. You know, it's like, (sighs) phony. (laughs) Oh, the pilgrim who's going to save the world from disaster by cultivating three steps, one bow, wants to be, is this my best sight here? Like, oh, God. And, I, I will say that I was catching it but that didn't stop those thoughts from rising up. Fame-seeking. Chou Oh my God. And then as soon as I got onto Highway 1 again in Sonoma County, Marin and Sonoma, past Green Gulch and the Bodega and then what did it turn to? It turned to thoughts of I've only got three months to get to city of 10,000 Buddhas. What if I'm not enlightened yet? <laughs> Big trouble. Uh-oh, all this bowing and I'm not a... have the bodhisattvas come? Maybe they came at night and I was asleep. Oh no. Now I can't sleep. I gotta stay awake in case that you know it's like, oh. This is called false thinking. It's also called big face. And so Master Shenhua would do such things as, and we got it in the book, got it in my journals. Haven't seen him for 30 days. We just you know, he's in San Francisco. We're bowing north. He used to drive down to Santa Barbara to find us. When we get past San Francisco, he's like he's pushed us out of the nest. Thirty days, haven't seen our teacher, and it's tough because every day there's stuff coming up that's scary and needs help. So, thirty days. We're in a place called um, Valley Ford, which is a little little tiny crossroads on Marin. And here's Shirpa's car, it's a Saturday afternoon. Here's his car. He pulls up. Finally I get a chance to say all the things I wanted to say to Shirpa. He rolls the window down, leans out, and he says, (laughs) Gohan. Tao He says, When you reach the place of seeking nothing, there are no further worries. Let's go. That was it. Dao wu qiu qiu bian wu You. Eight words. <laughs> That's my instruction for the next 30 days. Eight words. And it's like, what Shurva was saying was, look in the mirror, you're seeking. That's why you're worried. You're seeking. Stop worrying because you stop seeking. Stop seeking, no worry. Right? it's like, I didn't get it. Didn't get it. Eight words and I couldn't figure it up because I was in there. Boy, what if I'm not enlightened? What if my classmates didn't know that that monk was actually... Chris from, you know, from Cal. Remember him? Yeah. No. So, anyway, very humbling to see this intense stream of self-referential, egotistic thoughts of getting and losing, me and mine, self and others, success and failure, win and loss. Oh, man, that whole fabric of of suffering all of the eight winds are there the dukkha buddaku the suffering that comes from seeking and not getting just basic dharma was all rolling through my brain and some days i would catch it and just write about it other days i would just write about the thoughts instead of catching it. but very humble so when i see our bodhisattva who is protects and upholds the precepts and skillfully increases his thoughts of kindness and compassion. What that means to me is the bodhisattva is better and better at watching his or her mind pump out fighting, greed, seeking, selfishness, benefit and dishonesty and applies the precepts and says no, as soon as I have fighting thoughts I'm hurting myself and I'm preventing other beings from waking up. I'm going to what? Yield instead of fighting. Let somebody else take first place. Step back before the goal line. Anybody anybody see that movie called The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner? Tom Courtney was the actor? You're dated, right? We know how old we both are. It's a classic, wonderful black and white film from the sixties. Uh, British film The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner it's about uh, it, I recommend totally recommend this film it will make you think The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner 62 or 64 it's uh, the. I, I won't spoil it I will spoil it for you if I tell you the conclusion but in the end in the end there's you go through this incredible you know sweat and struggle to, to compete in a foot race. And at the very end, inches before crossing the tape, I won't tell you what happened. Oh, and when he makes his decision, the camera goes to all the crowd and his family and his trainers are all going, go, go, go. You know, he's like, what's the point? Anyway, so winning... This ability to step back and take a loss. Master Wao would say, chukwei. The bodhisattva path comes from the ability to let others get the good stuff and you stuff. That's how you cross over to fighting with one. So if I can see myself fighting to get enlightened, right? Fighting with who? Myself. Where is the Tao in fighting? I want to get enlightened. I better get enlightened. Everybody's hoping I get, enli- I get, I get, I get, I get. <laughs> me and <Mine>. I. <sighs> A winner. Let me interview this, the, the bowing monk. I'm sorry, I'm not talking. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you
1: know, i like, uh, So, to be able to say, why are you hurting your opportunity to get enlightened? Really, by seeking for yourself. At the place of seeking nothing, when you reach the place where you seek no more, then, there are no more worries. In other words, the Tao takes over. You merge with 10,000 things. Instead of wanting me, 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 you say, I'm bowing, I'm cultivating the Dharma. I want to lose the me and find everyone. Nope, can't do that because I might lose. It's exactly contradictory, and it's the fighting to, to win, to seek for self that obstructs all the goodness from flowing. So it's the me is the huge thumb in the dike. It's the obstacle that keeps the flow from happening. So. Okay, so instead of being greedy, when those greedy thoughts arise, how does the Bodhisattva increase compassion? He, she, gives instead of being greedy. Greed says, I want mine and I want yours too. What is yours is mine and what is mine is mine. Right? That's greed. You you can't even hold it. It's the bear putting one ear of corn under one arm and then reaching out for the other one and putting the ear of corn under this arm and dropping the first one. Right? You always you've gone down the whole row and you wind up with one ear of corn. Remember? So greed. Instead, you say, "I have plenty. here. Let me share. It. I love this, and if you have some, we'll both love it." And then there's two love thises in the world. So. That's how you cross over those rising thoughts of greed. How do you cross over rising thoughts of seeking? You say, enough. Content. I am content. What I have is exactly what I need, what I deserve, what comes to me is exactly what I heard. My blessings brought these things here. Content. (laughs) That doesn't stop us from continuing to do the things that create the blessings. It doesn't mean that's all you get. It means that what is here now came to me naturally. Anything, says Shri that you get by seeking, you don't hang on to. Because it didn't necessarily yes. earn it from planting blessings. If you do the work of benefiting others and making others happy, you can't stop the stuff from coming because you have planted those blessings. Seeking is, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it. But you don't do the work to get it. It's merely seeking without actually earning. That's the problem with seeking. Okay? So it'd be easier in the translation if we said merely seeking. We would get that. It would make sense. So you say, no, I'm content with what comes. I'm not so much worried with the harvest. I'm much more concerned with the planting and the weeding. Because if I do the planting and weeding and watering, what's coming will come all by itself. That's the way nature is. There's a certain amount of wisdom involved in the planting and weeding. The fourth and the fifth are related. No selfishness and no self-benefit. When I see selfish thoughts, that's me I say, huh, everybody around me thinks they're the center of the universe too. How can we all be the center of the universe? I would rather work for us. Instead of for me, I'm going to put us in the center. Expand the measure of my mind. The Chinese phrase is really good. Da bong wu You're going to be public spirited. That's how you cross over the Those thoughts arise all the time because we're told I'm important. Mostly what I buy is important. So instead of me, I say, what about us? Expand the center. Make it a centerless center. Then the the related one is no thoughts of personal advantage. That's the mine. If the me is the selfish, then the mine is self-benefit. Instead of saying, only for me, my stuff, you say, share. Share the goods. Self-benefit is the usual one we say, selfish self-benefit. Instead of seeking self-benefit, you seek to benefit everybody. Somebody comes, you say, yeah, it's good for me, good for everybody. It's an open-handed harvest. Move it out. And when you think about it, you know, here's what grabs me. About CEO salaries, for example, or the notion of somehow caring for elders and sick people is an entitlement that is unjust. It's like who says it's mine to begin with? Who says the oil under the Gulf sands at the bottom belongs to British Petroleum? It's not. British Petroleum's oil. That oil doesn't belong to any human creature or to any dolphin or crab or turtle. It's a shared resource. We don't own the natural world. That's just humanity at its worst, at its most self benefiting and selfish. That's a lie. Fundamentally, natural resources do not have owners. We share it. Who owns the Air? Mm. Google, as soon as it can, will take out a co- take out a copyright on the Air so it can own it for us and share it. We'll have Google Air, right? There's a MacBook Air. Apple's already owned the Air, right? So, MacBook Air. But Google Airs, can you imagine? E-R-R-S, Google Airs. Um, We don't think about the air as owned by anybody, but we sure pollute it. We abuse it. Who owns water? Well, more and more, water is privatized. So, I'm suggesting that these ideas, these six guidelines, are actual principles. It's the way things are, but ego and greed get in the way. So, instead of fighting, we yield. Instead of Greed, we give. Instead of seeking, we practice contentment. Instead of self, we behave selflessly and empty the center. Instead of personal advantage or self-benefit, we share. Then the last one is the easiest one to violate, which is honesty. Instead of lying, we tell the truth. So, fighting, greed, seeking, selfishness, benefit, and dishonesty. Yielding, giving, contentment, sharing, or selfless, sharing, and truth. Those are the way the Bodhisattva crosses over, recycles, composts those unkind and compassionate thoughts which are out there to help me and hurt others if needed. Right? Deluded. Wrong, said the Buddha. Misguided. When we see the fact that the self is just a construct, then why are we killing, stealing, lusting, lying, drugging ourselves for something that is just a way of seeing? Fundamentally, I am not this body and mind, But I believe I am, I behave as if I am, and I cause a lot of trouble for myself and others. So when you wake up, what you see is that the basic identity is interdependent, connected to all things. And there is a way to live in that interdependent connectedness that is harmless and that is wise. And the Bodhisattva, because of his or her vows, vows to benefit and to behave as if we saw that connection all the time. The idea that I'm a separate, isolated, autonomous monad, says the Buddha, is wrong seed. But that's the way the world tells us from the start. From the time we get our name in our mother's womb, we are on the path to thinking that I stop at my skin. This is me.
0: Get out of my way.
1: Right? Well... Right? And he's thirty-five years old, and we're still. <laughs> so the world tells us that's how it is. So the Dharma is this radical unlearning of wrong view, and at every step, substituting right view. The Buddha, and it's always just enough—not more than you can take. Just enough. So here's our bodhisattva recycling and recomposting those thoughts like mad. Because at a certain point, you realize that that the mind is finite, and the things we learned wrong can be unlearned and replaced with wholesome done. So um, we got just enough time to go through the next paragraph. And uh, we can because it's repetitive. 佛子菩薩柱子里垢地, 以怨立故得见多佛. Disciples of the Buddha, the Bodhisattva, who stays on this, the ground that leaves defilement behind, through the power of his vows, perceives many Buddhas. (coughs) Forget that title. So, through the power of vows, the Bodhisattva starts to see Buddhas. Um, This pattern here... Is repeated throughout the next nine, the next eight grounds. This is the summary part, and it's kind of a refrain. The bodhisattva starts to see more and more and more and more Buddhism. And it's because he or she is starting to really remove those impediments to true seeing. As the self falls away, the things the self believed to be true fall away in a big piece. And you start to see. kind of like on a mountaintop when the the fog lifts and you realize that you're way up high. You can see down in the valley and the next mountain range. Very powerful. Um, A friend of mine, Al Petaway, is a physician and a a photographer. Al used to be a photo editor for National Geographic and he and his wife Amy are uh, fabulous photographers and they live in the Blue Ridge Mountains um, up over the Swananoa Valley. And they um, right now their house is at 4,000 feet, and they're about to build on a new piece of land that I think is 6,000. And they um, outside their window right now, the bedroom window, Al is active on Facebook, and every morning he just gets out of bed, picks up his camera, goes over to the window and shoots what he sees and then posted online. And these are the most incredible photographs of the Blue Ridge Mountains in every season at all times of the day and night. Just amazing. Um, People read the book Cold Mountain about the Civil War novel, about Cold Mountain, about the guy. Anybody read Cold Mountain? Recommended. Just do it. They made a movie out of it not too long ago. Um, And... It's uh, it was the first novel for the author whose name I won't recall, but it's about a uh, a man who in 1864, after the uh, the siege of Petersburg, uh, deserted and tried to walk back to Cold Mountain, and all the things he saw. It's kind of like a Civil War Odyssey, uh, Homer's Odyssey. Anyway, Cold Mountain is a real mountain, and Al Petaway as he looks out over the valley sees Cold Mountain and every one of his photographs has Cold Mountain and Mount Pisgah in it. And there they are. And oh, it's so amazing. Some days it's only clouds. Green, pink, purple, blue, pearl clouds. Other days the clouds are gone. It's just... So as the Bodhisattva wakes up bit by bit the Buddhas start to appear. And the amazing thing is, well, they were never gone. They were always there. You just couldn't see it. Those things were in the way. Me and mine. And as the me and mine go away, oh, look, all those Buddhas. Look, there's Cold Mountain. Who knew? So okay. There we are. My golly. Questions, comments? About all that? We took a long samadhi detour, but I think it was the best. All right. Let us transfer the merit and virtue. And I want to, once again, express my appreciation to Fabrizio for... Putting together this incredible guitar, I had been, um, how wonderful that somebody's hands could create something like this. Flashing, is she? Mahogany? Um, <coughs> excuse me. Hmm. It's the, it's supposed to c- cough away from the <laughs> microphone, not into the microphone. Please cough into the microphone. Don't. Well, let's see. We made it through another three hours since the rapture. Three hours to go. to midnight. And then we can officially say we made it. Anyway, just to say, I've been uh, recording these last two couple days with this guitar, and uh, it records beautifully, and it sounds so alive and sweet, and the sustain is just incredible. So the dedication is on the uh, back of your songbook. It's also um, the last page of your songbook. Also in the sheet, the insert sheet. There, please make a wish. Uh, Understand that there are 120,000 folks homeless in Japan to this day. Um, There, the Mississippi floodwaters are flooding over the homes of many, 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 many poor Cajun farmers as the Army Corps of Engineers opens the levees to save Baton Rouge and Orleans, which is a good thing to do, but somebody, people's homes are gone. So they're going to be impacted the rest of their lives by that. So please send out the goodness and increase the positivity in the world, hope that it benefits all.